As we just heard, we are, we're blessed today to, in our readings for this fourth Sunday of Advent that includes Luke's account of the Annunciation. I've heard many people romanticize the ma- amazing events that occurred in Nazareth between Mary and Gabriel that eventually led to Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. It's kind of cute. Or the and artistic imp- impressions are always so beautiful. Yet this is a momentous event that includes a lot of wisdom for our own time. Since God created mankind, he had spoken and had an ongoing conversation with Adam and Eve. He revealed himself to them so that they might enjoy an intimate friendship, a relationship movingly described in Genesis as God walking in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, his creation. I liken it to a long road trip with friends where words cease to be necessary. The intimacy is just there, full and complete. This kind of intimate friendship makes the fall of Adam and Eve into sin a heartbreaking, as, as even more heartbreaking as it separated them from their friend and also their creator and Lord. Yes, when our first parents were disobedient, God didn't stop speaking to them, nor was his plan thwarted for us. Even as Adam and Eve tried to excuse their egregious faults, blaming it on this evil snake in the garden, God spoke his first words of promise to reverse the consequences of sin and to triumph over Satan, giving a hint of hope of the redemption that was to come. In Genesis 3.15, God speaking to the snake says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike at his heel. This is known as the Proto-Evangelium of the or the first gospel. This verse introduces two previously unknown realities that have become the basis of our Christian faith, our curse because of Adam's sins and God's provision for a savior who would take the curse upon himself. So after the fall, humanity began its long waited, uh, waited for its long waited savior. Clearly, what had broken down so completely would not have a quick fix. But to prepare for redemption, God continued that conversation over the centuries, speaking to the people through the prophets and the patriarchs, repeatedly renewing his promise. And then finally, the long-awaited time of the Messiah had come. God entered into a conversation par excellence with his people, this time with the Blessed Virgin Mary. And, of this, and out of this unique conversation, God's word and solution to our, fo- our woes became flesh. The angel Gabriel's words to Mary, hail, full of grace, announced a radical new turn in God's dialogue with his people. He singles out a young Jewish woman and through Gabriel makes a momentous request of her to bear the Son of the Most High. Mary's question, how can this be since I have no husband, shouldn't be understood as a skeptic's demand for proof. Rather, Mary enters deeply into the conversation, expressing a willingness 
to grasp something holy and so holy mysterious. Gabriel's response doesn't offer Mary any sort of physiological explanation of this pregnancy as Jesus is to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Instead, he assures her that nothing is impossible for God and the Holy Spirit will overshadow her. This overshadowing, if you will, that Mary received is the same presence that rested on the tabernacle, the portable sanctuary that the Israelites carried with them to house the Ark of the Covenant as they journeyed to the wilderness. Mary was in awe of Gabriel as he announced and described the child. He was to be named Jesus, which means the Lord saves. He would be the promised heir of Israel's greatest King David. As we just heard in our gospel today, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So in this brief encounter, Mary's future is unveiled. She will be the mother of, the, of Israel's Messiah. And what that exactly meant for her was unclear, but she gave her wholehearted assent. Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Certainly Mary's consent isn't just cheap talk. She was a young woman of faith, steeped in the knowledge of the prophetic promises of God. She was full of eager longing to see them fulfilled and reverence God's word and his promise and based her life on them. Before I studied and reflected on the significance of the Annunciation as a seminarian, I often thought of Mary's saying yes to God is in this one particular moment in time. But yet this one yes was self-sacrificing. We tend to forget Mary's duties and responsibilities were often like ours. She continued to live out her faith each and every day in the simplicity of the thousand daily tasks and worries of every mother, such as providing food and shelter and clothing and caring for the home of her son. She concerned herself, uh, herself uh, with Jesus' religious formation during the hidden years of his childhood. And she and Joseph most assuredly had financial problems and so on. Mary's yes sprang from her faith and from her trust in God. And when Jesus was presented in the temple and Simeon prophesied that her heart would be pierced through, Mary trusted once again, be it done unto me according to your word. When the Christ child was a, 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 a tiny baby, they flew into Egypt, the flight into Egypt, because someone was looking to kill the child, but Mary trusted, be it done unto me according to your word. When she lost her son in the crowd and found him teaching in the temple precincts, she was most assuredly perplexed, but she trusted, be it done unto me according to your word. When she traveled to, when he, Jesus traveled to John the Baptist to be baptized in the Jordan River to initiate his public ministry, she accepted that her son had a bigger calling than their simple life in Nazareth, and she accepted it. Be it done unto me according to your word. She must have heard about this, the many plots against his life as he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with 
corrupt religious leaders of his time. When he was disparaged and rejected by many, she accepted that pain. Be it done unto me according to your word. Mary's uncountable yeses every day of her life ultimately prepared her for the pain and suffering of watching her son's brutal death, not unlike a common criminal on a cross. Be it done unto me according to your word. Throughout the trials of her life, Mary took God at his word and trusted him to fulfill his promises to her. She had an unerring conviction that God would honor and meet her consent with grace, help, and protection, supplying her with everything she needed to carry out his will. Mary's story is supposed to be our story as well. She is the premier apostle of her son, the first to say yes. And over these many trying months of 2020, I've heard a steady stream of not trust, but frustrations in my own heart and in conversations and confessions of countless people who are so frustrated by so many things. The pandemic and the resulting oppressive rules that have surrounded it have led even to a crisis of faith for some. Some have been traumatized by racial tensions and a controversial election cycle. Leaders in and out of the church continue to disappoint us. And yet I often wonder if we ponder Mary's example of complete and total trust in God as we grumble. Frankly, on my weakest days, I'm getting tired of hearing myself whine. Others have said the same. Others still should be saying the same. Where is our trust in God and his movement and presence in our lives? We don't seem to want to suffer our crosses as Jesus suffered his, or as Mary did when her heart was pierced over and over again. Some would say we are a people who are going soft. Be it done to me according to your word. Think about it. It isn't just a sweet story. It was an epic response to the greatest question ever asked and was accompanying by intense suffering, yet trust in the Lord. Maybe it's a prayer that we need to adopt in our daily lives as well.